Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing psychoanalyst Jack Drescher about a series of articles that he edited for a journal of the American Psychiatric Association. The articles comprise the entirety of volume, volume 18, issue number three of the journal, published in July 2020, on the topic of LGBTQ plus mental health. Jack Drescher is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in pra- private practice in New York City. He is clinical professor of psychiatry, New York Medical College, an adjunct professor at New York University's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. He served on the APA's DSM-5 workgroup on sexual and gender identity disorders and the World Health Organization's ICD-11 working group on the classification of sexual disorders and sexual health. He is author of Psychoanalytic Therapy and the Gay Man that was published by Rutledge I think back in the 90s, he can tell us that, but also again in in 2014, and emeritus editor of the Journal of Gay and Lesbian Mental Health. He is also an expert expert media spokesperson on issues related to gender and sexuality. So welcome to the program, um, Jack. Thank you. Uh, Just one correction in your introduction. I was at New York Medical College, uh, but I'm now a clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and a faculty member at the Columbia Center for Psychoanalytic uh, Training and Research. Okay. That's a mouthful, but um, okay, thank you. (laughs) And so why don't you tell us about, well, I'm going to say this book, quote unquote, because it's not exactly a book, it's a a volume of a journal. Um, So tell us about it and and what it's about. Well, the... uh, Focus is a, uh, a continuing medical ed- education journal uh, published by the American Psychiatric Association. And uh, the editors of the journal reached out to me, I guess it was 2019, saying they wanted to do an issue related to LGBTQ plus mental health and would I be willing to edit it. And so uh, I reached out to a committee that I've been on for many years. I'm a member of an organization called the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry, which is a psychiatric think tank. And we have an LGBTQ committee there. And so I reached out to the members saying, were people interested in making contributions? And so I found enough contributors to put together this special issue of uh, focus dealing with mental health issues in these populations. Oh, that's great. You got to like pick pick the people to write the articles. And how did the editors of this journal, why did they go to you? Well, uh, within APA, uh, for I served as the chair of the, the APA's uh, Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual Issues Committee from 2000 to 2006. I'm frequently um, cited uh, by the APA's newspaper, Psychiatric News, on these issues. uh, Our communications office often reaches out to me to speak to media on on issues relating to mental health and LGBT patients. Um, And I I guess I'm known within my professional organizations as having expertise in this area. And and how much are you known as, as a psychoanalyst like if we were going to scrutinize your your curriculum vitae, uh, 
what would sort of the impression would take away in terms of understanding you as a, a psychoanalyst or psychiatrist? Where do you fit in? And that's an interesting question because if I if you look at my CV, the bulk of my publications are not in psychoanalytic journals. Um, I have some publications in psychoanalytic journals, but uh, to be honest, I don't think that many people actually read psychoanalytic journals. They don't really have. <laughs> I don't think they actually have really high impact factors. And so, uh, so I, uh, I, and I'm also not the kind of person who does blind submissions to journals. I think for the last 15 or so years, people reach out to me, would you like to contribute, you know, to, to something, to a special issue that they're doing? Some of my work on the DSM-5 and the ICD-11 produced papers that went into very important journals, World Health Organization Bulletin, International Review of Psychiatry about diagnoses. I would say that if you you would look at my work, you would I would I think I bring a psychoanalytic sensibility to work that I'm probably one of I think I was one of the only two psychoanalysts who were invited to participate in the DSM five process. And I'm pretty sure I was the only psychoanalyst invited to participate in the ICD-11 process. So I'm a psychoanalyst who talks to other people besides psychoanalysts. Even though I talk to psychoanalysts, to other psychoanalysts as well, I am, for example, a co-editor with my friend and colleague, Sue Collard, of the official blog of the American Psychoanalytic Association called Psychoanalysis Unplugged. And one of our goals is to try and explain psychoanalytic ways of thinking to a general audience, which I think is really important. Oh. I, I don't think I've come across that blog. It's an official blog of the, the IPA. The, of the American, uh, the American, the American Psychoanalytic. Oh, oh the American. Part. Okay. Yeah. Ah, all right. Yeah. And it's on psychology today. And we've had over a million hits in, in the last four years, I think. Hmm. Wow. Um, and, and you have, um, speaking of the IPA, the international, there's a, a list serve you're involved with there on this issue, LGBTQ issues. Is that right? That's correct. So um, I uh, was invited to serve as a consultant on an IPA committee on gender, uh, 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 sexual orientation and gender diversity. And, the, and one of the, uh, the products that has come out of the committee just in the last couple of months and the development of a listserv for IPA members who are interested in gender and sexuality and mental health, and I'm the moderator of the serve, and it's an it's a, it's an it's an important tool for getting information to other countries where people may not have the same access to information that we have here in the United States. Okay, well, yeah. So, if any of our listeners are interested in that, since a lot of our listeners are. IPA people or psychoanalytically interested mm-hmm. people. So that's a list serve. They can, I, I guess, email me and I'll, I'll let them know mm-hmm. how to, to, to join that list serve. I guess, can anybody join the list serve or do you have to be a, a psychoanalyst? Well, well for, for the time, well, no, for the time being, the IPA list serve is only open to IPA members. It may change in the future, but <clears throat> if any of your listeners want to be on my LGBT mental health list serve, which has parallel oh. postings to the IPA list serve, they let me know who they are, and I'm happy to add their names to my listserv, which has about a thousand people on it. Okay. Now, speaking of impact, so yeah, I like the you're a psychoanalyst who who maybe is having more impact than a lot uh, out there in the world because of your sort of crossovers into various other 
sort of disciplines. Um, I think I first came across your name must have been what could have been like 25 years ago. There was a book you published, uh, Psychoanalytic Therapy and the Gay Man. Um, can you tell us about th that book when it was published and sure. I don't know its impact? Okay. Well, <clears throat> um, I finished my psychoanalytic training in 1992 at the William Allenson White Institute in New York City. Uh, I trained at the William Allenson White Institute, uh, not because I was interested in interpersonal or relational psychoanalysis, but because it was the only um, scholarly institute in New York City at the time that would accept an openly gay man as a candidate when I applied for training in 1988. So that's why I went to White. And at White, of course, even though it was more open than some of the other institutes, which only changed their policies in 1991 or 1992 after threat of a lawsuit from the ACLU, but even though White was let's say more progressive. I mean, what people were teaching about homosexuality and gender was really quite primitive, quite quite backward. And the field is really quite primitive and backward in many ways in that regard, where most psychoanalytic institutes are still starting their training about human sexuality with the three essays, which was written in 1905. So that's a problem in the field. So when I finished my analytic training, I just started writing papers. I wrote about half a dozen papers. I actually won an award Here's an interesting story. So I won an award from the White Institute for a public for a paper published by a recent graduate. It was called the Lawrence W. Kaufman Award. It came with a cash prize. And the award was for a publishable paper. But when it came time to publish it, the institute balked. The journal balked at publishing it. And they actually said to me something along the lines of, well, we said it's for a publishable paper. We don't say that we publish it. So... <laughs> Oh, and the paper was about psychoanalytic attitudes toward homosexuality, and it was a review of some of the history in psychoanalysis. And so uh, I complained. Uh, they changed their mind, but I chose not to publish it in the Institute's journal. And actually, my pathway of not publishing in psychoanalytic journals that much or submitting to them, I think, really was shaped by that experience because, you know, as one of my friends said, it's just pearls before swine. So I, um, but I was writing a lot of papers, and I ran into a man named John Kerr. I don't know if people know who he is. John Kerr, who became a friend, was an editor for uh, the Analytic Press, and John was a, a brilliant, brilliant writer and editor. He was actually the son of two very famous writers, the uh, New York Times theater critic Walter Kerr and the uh, writer of uh, magazine articles and books, uh, Gene Kerr, who wrote the book Please Don't Eat the Daisies. John had written a book himself called The Most Dangerous Method, which interestingly enough was made into a Hollywood movie about Freud and Jung and Sabina Spielrein. And John and I met at a conference at the APA. He was manning the uh, book booth at the Analytic Press. And we said, oh, you know, he said, I told him I'd done, written some papers. We had lunch when we got back to the city. Uh, we had met in Philadelphia. And they offered me a book contract to write a book. And... <clears throat> Then, of course, when I got a book contract, the first thing I thought is I don't really know anything. So I just read for six months. I had been collecting books in the pre-internet, uh, modern internet days. You know, one used to go to the uh, Barnes & Noble um, warehouse and buy old books on curing homosexuality written by psychoanalysts. So I spent six months <laughs> reading all these old books that I'd been accumulating. 
and then finally started writing. And the book finally came out uh, in 1998, the first edition, hardcover. And then they printed a second edition, so, uh, paperback, in 2001. And the book is still in print. Uh, the Analytic Press was uh, was bought by Taylor and Francis, and so now the book has a Rutledge imprint. And it's available. I think what Taylor and Francis does now is they print books on demand. <laughs> People order a book, they print up a copy of the book. So, which is fine. So I, it's still selling copies, but it, it served as a vehicle for putting down a lot out a lot of the ideas that later came to inform some of the papers that I was to write later on. So when you were collecting those books from the uh, Barnes and Noble warehouse or whatever back in the, when was it? The early 90s? Yeah, I would say the 80s and early 90s, yeah. Okay. What Were there any, who were the influential, who were the writers in the world of, I don't know, psychoanalysis that you sort of felt like maybe were your sort of the pioneers in this this field? Well, influential writers, well, the, you know, Richard Isay was an influential writer. He was a, a person who uh, wrote, started writing articles in the 1980s from a psychoanalytic perspective, although he was writing from a more traditional psychoanalytic perspective, uh, not, not really a relational or interpersonal approach. Um, I had a mentor at the White Institute, uh, Bertram Schaffner. Uh, Bert was 40 years older than me, so uh, I got to know him when he was about 70, and he was a very influential person. He, he didn't do a lot of papers, but he wrote a lot of interesting things about working with gay patients and working with HIV-positive patients. He ran groups for HIV-positive physicians, for example, in New York City. Um, I think there, there wasn't a lot, really. I mean, there, I mean, there were important people. Uh, Judd Marmer was a very important psychoanalyst in this history who had published two books, one in, uh, uh, in, in the 60s, in which he presented different ideas. Judd had been president of the American Psychiatric Association, and I think also the American Psychoanalytic, and was one of the people who was involved in the removal of homosexuality from the DSM. So those are some of the people that were influential, I think. I'm trying to remember. Was there a Lewis? Uh... Oh, Kenneth Lewis, yes, of course. Kenneth Lewis was, uh, who just passed away of COVID in, in April, sadly, was a um, psychologist. Uh, I interviewed Ken for my journal in lesbian mental health. I'm doing, I, I've been doing a series of interviews called the Oral History Project. And Ken had been uh, had a PhD in English literature from Harvard, and then he decided he wanted to become a, psycho, a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. So he got his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which is actually where I got my medical degree from. Although, he, and so I didn't know him then. Although it turns out we were in Ann Arbor around the same time. But when he applied to the Michigan Psychoanalytic Institute uh, in the early '80s, he was turned down because he was openly gay. Um, and so he took his PhD thesis and he turned it into one of the most brilliant psychoanalysts. Hey, Jack, I think we're, I'm losing you. Um, you said Hello? turned it into one of the most brilliant something. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I've got you back. Yeah. Okay, sorry. So he, uh, Ken, Ken Lewis turned his PhD thesis into one of the most brilliant books that I ever read, which came out as the Psychoanalytic Theory of Male Homosexuality. And it came out. It had been out in three editions. He had two subsequent uh, editions of the book. Um, and basically from a, you know, I think from a very Freudian perspective, he provided normalizing theories of homosexuality 
uh, he devised mathematical scheme in which there were 12 possible outcomes to the Oedipal complex, six of which <laughs> led to heterosexuality in men and six of which led to homosexuality in men. So. Hmm. Yes, I just pulled it off my bookshelf. Kenneth Liu's ah, right. Psychoanalysis and Male Homosexuality. Yeah, that was an important book that I read. Very um, important book. It's interesting. I think you and I kind of came up in the same era, uh, sort of in the 80s. You mentioned in 1988, you entered the Allison, William Allenson White Institute um, because it accepted openly gay men. I was ordained in the Episcopal Church in 1988 as the, I, I think, arguably the first openly gay man who was ordained by the Episcopal Church um, wow. at that at that time. Um, so um, that was those were early days for gay people to be moving into some of these professions. But let's move to um, back to this volume and in, in the the focus psychiatry online, and tell us a little more about what what people would find uh, in this volume. Okay, well, <clears throat> I'll start. Excuse me. I'll start by um, saying that what, uh, three papers sort of come to mind. Uh, one paper by Alan Schwartz and Eric Yarbrough and Christopher McIntosh. Two of those gentlemen were editors of the, uh, the journal Gay and Lesbian Mental Health. Chris McIntosh still is. It was about sex and relationship issues and work with the LGBTQ community. And it's a, it's a quite open article about uh, what I guess people on the right might refer to as alternative lifestyles, but it's a very frank uh, way of discussing the way that some gay people organize their lives and, not, and their sexual practices and relationships in non-traditional ways. And then another article, which I think was really important by uh, my friend Bill Bine and Joseph Wise, uh, was about both of them have worked in the Veteran Administration and then Joe in the military, there's an article called Toward Optimizing Mental Health Care for Sexual and Gender Minority Veterans. And they talk a lot about the way the VA system has changed and has become more open to uh, patients who are LGBT and particularly trans patients and the ability to access services there, not in all services, but some. And finally, <clears throat> there's an interview of Eric Yarbrough, who's written some important uh, papers and, and books about working with transgender patients. And uh, this article by Benjamin Fay and Joanna Hola and Flavio Casoy is about the treating the family members of transgender and gender nonconforming people. So I think what's really important about this particular issue is that these are subjects that are really not covered very much anywhere. You know, certainly not so much in psychoanalysis, but not anywhere else that much. So it was really good that they were bringing like new perspectives and expert perspectives on these issues. Yeah, so I can imagine maybe some of our listeners who sort of tune into this channel because they want to hear about psychoanalysis. I don't know. Some of them might be sort of saying, well, this is not really about psychoanalysis. This is about um, LGBTQ psychology or LG. And, but I, I suppose, I don't know. If I was to respond, I think psychoanalysts need some cultural competency in order to work with this population group. But what what would you say about why psychoanalysts need to read, I don't know, literature like this? Well, the reason they need to read literature like this is because if they have a patient who belongs to any of these groups, they're not going to get the answers to working with them from the psychoanalytic literature. 
psychoanalytic literature is, you know, demonstrates a, a, a great paucity of understanding of these issues. It's starting to change a little bit. There are some recent articles, but there are also some recent terrible articles too. The International Journal of Psychoanalysis uh, just published some articles having to do with gender and transgender, and one of the publications is you would have to call it a polemical diatribe against transgender people. So, I mean, that's psychoanalysis today. So if you're going to treat these people in an empathic and supportive way, you might have to look outside, you know, your chosen area of training. Okay, well, so let's talk about, I don't know, conversion therapy, which I kind of thought was something from history. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But what do you know? Is it still happening today, conversion therapy? Hopefully not in the world of psychoanalysis, but... Well, I don't know. what the, In the world of psychoanalysis, everything is possible. So um, I, um, I started uh, writing about conversion therapies in the middle of in the 90s. And I've actually been a, uh, an expert witness in, in, uh, in New Jersey when they passed a law banning conversion therapy for minors and have been have submitted amicus briefs based on my work and the work of others in this area. When I started writing about conversion therapies, which mean efforts to change a homosexual orientation to a heterosexual one, the conventional wisdom in the men- all the mental health professions, not just psychoanalysis, but in psychiatry, was that there was no harm in trying. But I wound up, when I started my practice in New York in the mid- around 1985, I started, because of my work in a gay psychiatrist group that was in New York City, I started getting referrals of gay patients who were looking for a gay psychiatrist. And there was maybe like three openly gay psychiatrists in New York City at the time. That's not the case now. And so I started seeing patients. Many of them were older than I was. In the 80s, I was in my, in my 30s. Uh, and these were people in their 40s and their 50s, many of whom had been in previous treatments, often with psychoanalysts, but other modalities in which they had tried to change their sexual orientation. And in all of these cases, they reported lots of harm that was done as a result of these treatments, which is why they were now looking for a gay psychiatrist who they hoped would not try to hurt them the way these previous therapists had hurt them. And so when I started writing, I think I wrote my first piece for the New York State Psychological Association newsletter. Uh, It was a criticism talking about some of the things I'd seen in my clinical practice. Uh, it, it, It brought a letter of rebuke from Charles Socarides, of course, and um, then I was asked by the Journal of Homosexuality's editor, uh, John DiCecco, would I write an article for his journal, which I did, which came out in 1998. I was working on my book at the time, so I had a chapter that you know, was parallel to what I was working on in the paper. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, um, and then in 2000, I held as chair of the Committee on Gay, Lesbian, and Bisexual Issues the American Psychiatric Association, I helped the, uh, the, the a, my APA come up with a position statement uh, that said that uh, it was unethical to do a conversion therapy, uh, which passed not without a lot of problems. But these, but these kinds of things continue to go on. Uh, they, I just got a, um, an email, for example, from, I'm trying to remember where the email came from, I'm blocking. Uh, but it, oh, from Division 44 of the American Psychological Association, that you know many of the American conversion therapists are now selling their uh, their snake oil overseas, particularly in Eastern Europe. So it's a conference, you know, uh, on Zoom, but it, you know, speaking in Hungarian and Polish and uh, Slovakian and English 
on, you know, opposed to, you know, uh, people being gay and how to change people from being gay. So uh, this is still going on. It's partially driven by uh, religious beliefs that do not accept homosexuality. It's partially dri uh, driven by uh, here in the United States, you have uh, cons socially conservative organizations that fundraise by saying, you know, help us stop the gay agenda. And so they, you know, they, they use so-called ex-gays to try and prevent uh, social acceptance or normalization of homosexuality. So, yeah, that, I saw that um, in, in the, the list serv about the Division 44 of the American Psychological Association. And I was that was new to me because I'm familiar with Division, is it Division 39? Um, what's the, the difference between Division 39 and Division 44 of the AP? Division 44. 44 is uh, the, basically the LGBT section um, of, of, of the American Psychological Association, and Division 39 is the psychoanalytic uh, division of the American Psychological oh, Association. Oh. <laughs> right. I always sometimes get confused about who I am. Is okay. Am I a psychoanalyst or am I <laughs> an, L, an LGBTQ affirmative therapist? Um Okay, yeah, that was interesting. I looked at, um, so it wasn't the Division 44 that was, they somehow had uh, listed a conference that was sponsored by another organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went and looked at that website and it began by saying, like, we respect the dignity of LGBTQ um, people, uh, but, but we're interested in helping people who are not comfortable with their uh, behavior or feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was sort of a nuanced way of trying to say, we're not trying to force anything on anybody. Mm -hmm. We're trying to help people who aren't comfortable with their sexuality. It reminded me, I, I have a patient, a rather relatively young man who's not, he, ex he accepts the fact that he's gay, but he, he kind of wishes he wasn't and, and s has seen it as a big, it's been, an unfortunate thing in his life, but uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, one can be uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that there's a, a method to change your sexual orientation. I mean, mm -hmm. part, part of the work that I've done over the years is to help people you know, uh, make the distinction between what we call a sexual orientation, which is who I'm attracted to, versus a sexual identity, you know, how I, how I come to grips or come to terms with my sexual attractions. So it's entirely possible to have a pure homosexual attraction and not identify as gay because you don't want to for religious reasons or personal reasons or cultural reasons, uh, but that doesn't make the sexual attraction go away. And so, um, so as I said, you know, I saw in my practice, a skewed version of people who tried to change, they failed to change. Uh, since many of, the, many of these practitioners begin by telling the patient or the client that uh, you know, your motivation to change is the major factor in whether this treatment will work. Or for the religious therapist, your faith is the major factor that will determine whether this works. So it starts out by setting up the patient or client to blame themselves when the treatment fails, as most of them do, because you know they say, well, I must not have been motivated enough, not that the treatment doesn't work, but that it's my fault. And so that's one of the uh, things that would happen to people. They were set up to feel worse about themselves because of the therapist's uh, false promises. Mm -hmm. And in addition, 
you know, people started out feeling, you know, more depressed and more anxious because they, they experienced it as a personal failure when it didn't work. Uh, some people, you know, would report that they felt like killing themselves because it didn't work. That's how bad they felt. Some people got married under the, under, under the tutelage of the therapist in heterosexual marriages and created families. And some of them came from religious backgrounds where getting divorced was, you know, highly stigmatized. And so these therapists created tragic situations as they moved on to the next um, sucker born every minute. Yeah. One of your um, articles was by, I think her name was Dorothy Stubbs. And, yeah. and it had, she, she said, um, I found a, something in it that was interesting. Despite the fact that the APA, both the American Psychiatric and the American Psychological um, condemn basically conversion therapy, she says, let's see, it is estimated that 20,000 lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer youths aged 13 to 17 will receive conversion therapy from a licensed health care professional before they reach the age of 18. Three times that number will receive a conversion therapy from religious or spiritual advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an important statistic, I think, to, to know that this is still right. Well, currently, there are 20 states in the District of Columbia that ban uh, the practice of conversion therapy with minors, minors being under 18 years of age. Unfortunately, uh, and it's only, it only affects licensed professionals, and it only affects uh, people under the age of 18. I call this a very large uh, hammer for a very small nail, because the bulk of the clients who seek these treatments are not minors, and the bulk of the practitioners are not licensed professionals. They're people who call themselves life coaches or spiritual advisors. So uh, it's a problem. Uh, One solution to the problem is uh, was found in New Jersey, where there was a um, a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit against an organization called Jonah, which stood at the time, I think, for Jews offering new alternatives to homosexuality, which was sued uh, in New Jersey for consumer fraud. New Jersey has some of the uh, most stringent consumer fraud protections in the United States. And it was decided that uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center would find some plaintiffs who had been treated by Jonah in New Jersey, and they won. They won the lawsuit. Uh, the judge you know, would not allow many of their so-called experts to, to, to even testify because it was, he said, I think he said it was something like having people who believe that the earth is flat testify in terms of their presentation of their expertise. So <clears throat> they won the lawsuit, they won damages. And of course, what I think reflecting the nature of the kind of organizations that do this, they basically reopen shop under another name using the same phone number and same address, which may have more long-term consequences because the judge apparently was not happy to hear that, but I don't know if they're going to uh, increase the damages as a result of their going against the court's decision and continuing to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a line in the, the, the introductory article that you wrote for this, this series of articles. Um, there's a, a sentence that says, in many ways, Psychotherapy for this group, meaning the LGBTQ plus group, does not differ from psychotherapy for heterosexual, gender-conforming, and cisgender patients. And I, I stopped for a moment there and I thought, oh, gender-conforming and cisgender patients. Can you unpack the difference be- between that 
Um, okay. Because some people might think, oh, isn't that the same thing, gender conforming and cisgender? Well, they, they have, well, uh, how can I put it? So etymology, the word homosexuality uh, came into popular usage first. And before that, you were normal or you were homosexual. Then the word heterosexuality began to emerge as a scientific way to talk about people who are not homosexual. Well, the same thing is true of the word transgender or, uh, or transsexual even, which has more of a medical uh, uh, origin. You know, transgender came into usage in the 1990s. And then a term emerges for people who are not transgender, and that became cisgender. And, and a synonym for transgender is gender non-conforming. So what is the opposite of, you know, what is the opposite of a gender non-conforming person is a gender conforming person. So the, so the, the, the I, I sometimes, you know, like all the, all the term, I, I give a lecture when I, I do lectures and grand rounds and I try and start with definitions and I, and I warn the audience, I said this, you know, sometimes it's really hard to keep up with all the terminology because the terminology is changing as the culture is changing. But the idea is, is that if you're treating, you know, what, what, we, what we usually think of as quote unquote normal is not homosexual, is not transgender, is not gender nonconforming. But since we don't want to elevate, you know, normal, uh, because there are people who are uh, not those things, but they are quote unquote normal too, this is another way to talk about it. Is that clear? <laughs> um, I know I I have been studying these issues all my life, but it it gets confusing. But right. I know that um, I I I liked how throughout all these articles you really <clears throat> include it was there was this in spirit of inclusiveness. Um, in, in the old days, we used to talk about like gay and lesbian studies, and then maybe gradually sort of gay and lesbian bisexual. But in these articles, you 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 always. And your writers were bringing in um, transgender and gender issues as well as sexual orientation issues. Um, and I, yeah, can you say a little bit about inclusiveness? Well, I mean, in well, I mean you know, I mean, there are the, the the LGBT plus community is a community is because all the different members. It's a heterogeneous community. All the different members of those communities have one thing in common, which is that they say they, they can all suffer uh, stigma and discrimination from the majority. And so from a political perspective, uh, it's helpful for people to know, you know, what do we have in common? What do we have to uh, protest? We have to protest stereotypes. We have to pro protest the conflation of gender or, uh, gender identity and sexual orientation, which, by the way, psychoanalysts are still doing today. Uh, and so the way to do that is to sort of tease these things out all the time, which is, you know, very tedious work, by the way. I mean, it's, but it's important to do that. Um, it can reach extremes because, you know, I don't particularly love the alphabet soup of all the letters that you can use. I, sometimes I prefer sexual minorities because it's a, it, it, I don't have to keep track of all the letters. But it, but the fact that it has to be done is, is really the, the most important fact. And that's what we try to do in this issue. Mm -hmm. you know, there's kind of an, an, an activist component of um, not lumping people together um, too easily. Right. Um, and by the way, that's a psychoanalytic perspective, in my opinion. 
which is that you know you know focusing on individuality as opposed to lumping people together in groups is to me the essence of a psychoanalytic approach. Oh, hmm. oh, good. We got psychoanalysis. <laughs> Uh, point for psychoanalysis in there. Yes, um, definitely. I have. I, and you meant, I, I have. I have yeah. not. I have not repudiated my psychoanalytic identity ever. I'm not. I'm very proud to be a psychoanalyst. I'm just not proud of the way my field operates. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're you're a, a loyal opposition, um, a member of the critical sort of, I don't know, group, and. I saw in your listserv there's going to be a, a, a book discussion recently by a, a gay, I think, psychiatrist named Robbie Alamedin. And I, I wrote down a quote. I listened to an interview by him. He said, the only reason I am so happy and comfortable in my life is because of all the people who said no before me. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, importance and and this is sort of one of my pet peeves is how do all of us in the mental health profession maintain sort of a critical sort of political consciousness about what we're doing and uh, because if we're not saying no to certain things uh we're just perpetuating an unjust status quos um but let me go back to you mentioned one thing this this group it's a hetero- heterogeneous group meaning the differences among the members are are as significant as as what they have in common, but w- one thing they have in common is that they're they're oftentimes stigmatized, and which that's part of what we understand is what's called the, the minority stress model. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Well, the minority stress model was developed by Elon Meyer, who I think is now at the Williams Institute at the UCLA, and and it argues that individuals in a minority group can be at higher risk for mental health disorders as a result of being subject to stigma and stigmatizing attitudes or subject to discriminatory policies and other social stressors that are imposed from the majority group. So uh, Meyer, among others, would argue that as a result, LGBT individuals, like other stigmatized minorities, may be subject to significant stress, prejudice, hostility, and expectations of rejection, which can all contribute to a considerable and disparate mental health burden. Yeah, and including... And then, People staying that, in the closet. Right. And then this is something that I think that's unique. <clears throat> and it's something that's unique uh, to the LGBT people as opposed to other minority groups that experience stressors and minority stress is that when people are raised in a religious, ethnic, and cultural minority, minority, they usually learn to deal with the prejudices of the majority groups from their parents and families and communities. For example, I grew up in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst, which at the time was a mixed uh, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish and uh, Italian American neighborhood. And I don't know, when I was probably about eight or nine years old, my friends, my neighborhood friends started going to Catholic uh, uh, catechism lessons for for their first communion. And uh, and they would come back and then they would say to this eight-year-old Jewish boy, how come the Jews killed Christ? And this is before Vatican II in the 1960s. So I went home to my mom and I didn't know what I said, and I asked her. So my mom said, you, you go back and you tell them that the Romans killed Christ. So that, you know, so that, you know, that as a Jewish child, I learned how from my parents, how they coped with anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, LGBT individuals grow up, grow up in families that share the anti-LGBT prejudices of the majority group. 
or as one of my patients put it, we're the only minority born into the majority camp. Into the ma- majority camp, or was it into the enemy camp? <laughs> I thought oh. I remembered it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which hopefully our parents aren't our enemies, but actually, for many LGBTQ people, there's a very yeah there. Yeah. There is a negative attitude towards their sexuality. There was a one of my favorite articles I read um, years ago, uh, The Trauma of Growing Up Gay. I think maybe that was the title by, I think, two psychoanalysts named Blum and Fetzing. Are you familiar no, with that article? That book, no. But they just made a point of how heterosexual parents, they see their little baby child who's maybe, I think they called it a proto-gay child, a child who may <laughs> grow up being LGBTQ. And what they're seeing and imagining in that child is um, a heterosexual child, not what the mm-hmm. child actually is on the way to mm-hmm. being. And mm-hmm. that dissonance and misattunement uh, can be really traumatizing. This article makes a case for. Well, well what um, one could also say that, you know, certainly in the, in, the, in, the, toward the, in the last few decades of the 20th century, when I was seeing patients who came from religious communities outside New York City, they had left those communities. That is that they had cut themselves off from their own backgrounds because of the lack of acceptance from the communities they grew up in. And for some of them, that was a tragic loss because you know separation from your family and your community is a loss of resources, personal resources, social resources. So that was, I think, you know, I think that happens a little bit less, at least in many parts of the United States. I think that we're seeing that there's more acceptance uh, particularly now that gay marriage is legal. All the surveys show that most people think it should be legal. But I think it, it's, uh, it, it can still be difficult to, to have to leave your family and community behind because you think uh, that you would be rejected by them. I'm going to kind of skip ahead here, but I want to just kind of itemize some of the things people might find in these articles. Um, questions about what does it mean to come out to oneself? I thought there was some really good stuff there. Uh, the causes of homosexuality and the three basic ways of explaining the causes of homosexuality, normal variation, theories of pathology, Mm -hmm. theories Mm -hmm. of immaturity. Mm -hmm. Um, Should should LGBTQ patients seek out LGBTQ therapists? That's a question people might ask. Um, And maybe one of the most controversial ones about self-disclosure. Should a psychoanalyst disclose to his or her patients, um, his or her sexual orientation or other gender identity. That's that's a tricky one. Do you want to try to that? tackle that sure, one? Yeah, I started writing some notes yesterday. Um, so psychoanalysis is a fragmented field with many of its practitioners, I, I think of as being like members of religious cults in which they argue about what does and what does not constitute good practice. And there are people who like to quote Freud's papers on techniques, which were written in the 19-teens, which are now more than 100 years old, as being the beginning and the end of disclosure issues, meaning you should not disclose. But there are other analysts, uh, like myself, who are trained in traditions that began with Shandor Ferenczi, who was one of Freud's closest earlier followers. But thanks in part to Ernest Jones, Ferenczi's reputation was besmirched as having lost his mind in the final years of his life. And since Ferenczi experimented with something called mutual analysis and and criticized the so-called blank screen model, 
what he learned from his experiments was not considered to be part of the psychoanalytic mainstream in the middle of the 20th century. But psychoanalysis, unfortunately, does not often operate as a science, but as a loosely bound group of cults in which people use different developmental theories, listen for different materials when listening to patients, only read articles from journals whose editorial positions already match their pre-existing beliefs and training. And as my former publisher, Paul Stepanski of the Analytic Press, put it in a very important book called Psychoanalysis at the Margins, he wrote, there are no schools of cardiology. Competing theories are tested against each other. Remember the quaint notion of random controlled studies? And these theories are tested against each other until a scientific consensus is, is achieved. In psychoanalysis, the centers often break away from their own groups, or in, the, or in the case of the British Psychoanalytic Association in the mid 20th century, they break off into their own silos and start their own journals, etc. So, so there's a long tradition within some psychoanalytic schools of self-disclosure, which is anathema. It's been amusing to me in my work at the American Psychoanalytic Association, they've been having town halls to listen to some traditionally trained analysts complain about being on Zoom because the patients can see into their homes. Hello, the pa- <laughs> hello. The patient can find out your political contributions online, how much you paid for your condominium, and all kinds of information just by doing a Google search. And if they're really good, they can find out a lot more information than that. So, so the idea that, that you, you, you pretend that the patient doesn't know anything about you, which was criticized by Ferency in a 1930 paper, a 1932 paper called Confusion of Tongues, which did not get published until 1949. It was so controversial. I think that's a problem in the field that doesn't really know how to adapt itself to the reality of, of, of human communications. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're beginning to wind down. So I, I, but I, I'm, I wanted to ask about issues of race because that's become so important in 2020. And I, I think it's something we need to be thinking about how it comes up in the consulting room. Um, should it come up in the consulting room? And do you have thoughts about that? Maybe from your practice or. It's not an area where I feel myself expert in, in commenting on it. I mean, like everybody else these days, I'm learning a lot. And I want to learn a lot more. Um, we have, um, uh, I'm actually co-chairing the colloquium committee of the William Allison White Society this year, and our theme is otherness. And we had uh, a, a wonderful presentation by Beverly Stout of Atlanta, who talks about you know being African American and psychoanalysis and ways of understanding that form of otherness. And we have another. Uh, our January colloquium will be with uh, Ruth Shim an African-American psychiatrist who resigned from the American Psychiatric Association in protest of what she sees as their racist uh, infrastructure. Um, In terms of being a member of a racial minority and LGBTQ, it comes with many layers of meaning. As I said earlier, it's not a homogenous community. There are differences. And I can only say in a broad sense, it's always a challenge to engage with people whose races and and religions differ from your own. It shouldn't be an obstacle to treating them, but it does require that you know something about cultural differences. This is a limitation in psychoanalysis where we where where people still believe there's a universal Oedipus complex. I mean that you know that the uh, development is different and and psychoanalysts very for a very long time tried to pretend that cultural differences did not matter. 
well. And in fact, you know, in like my institute, I once read a book with a bunch of people like uh, Martin Bergman and Otto Kernberg, and they referred to the White Institute as a, as a cultural institute. And that wasn't a compliment. It's like saying that, you know, like real psychoanalysts, we explore the mind in isolation. Whereas these people, they're sort of like they're fuzzy, you know, and they don't really understand that this is really about the mind. And I think it was really uh, Jay Greenberg and Steve Mitchell and their brilliant book, Object Relations and Psychoanalytic uh, Theory, which came out in 1983, you know, and still impressed. You know, they really like laid out psychoanalytic theories and laid out differences between what they called one person psychologies and two person psychologies. So um, I don't think there's much of a future, you know, for people who really believe in one person psychologies. Psychoanalysis, as we all know, is in a lot of trouble because it seems completely irrelevant the way people think and feel today. And so um, the challenge, I think, uh, to the field, you know, challenge I'm willing to participate in in my work as on the Committee on Public Information of the American Psychoanalytic Association is like, you know, this is not your father's psychoanalysis anymore. And if you don't uh, figure out what's broken with this system, if you don't figure out what's broken with this system, it's just going to wither on the vine. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, in the last sort of 30 seconds, have you read any good books lately? Yeah, <laughs> Can well, you recommend anything? What do you- well, I'll be, I'll be honest. During the, since the pandemic started, I have not really been able to pick up any of the books on my, on my various nightstands. And so, but I did recently start a biography of Frank Kameny. Uh, Frank was a scientist and an astronomer who was one of the activists responsible for initiating the process that led to removing homosexuality from the DSM-2 in 1973. The book is called The Deviant War by Eric Cervini. I'm saying the doing the Italian pronunciation. I don't know if he pronounces it that way. And it tells how Frank lost his job working for the U.S. government and led to his becoming an activist who literally changed the world. And I happened to know Frank before he passed away in 2011. He was actually on my uh, list of distribution and would frequently write me privately in response to an article I was posting. The only psychoanalytic book I'm presently reading is from the Tavistock Clinic series in Rutledge. It's called Sexuality and Gender Now, Moving Beyond Heteronormativity. Uh, it's edited by Lisa Hertzman and Juliet Newbigin. And I guess the reason I'm reading is they republished the paper that I wrote in the 2000 about uh, rethinking gender categories, and most of the contributors are British analysts, but it has some chapters by my fellow Yanks, Ken Corbett and Melanie Suchet. Yeah, I came across that book recently. That might be a good one for me to mm. think about an interview for. Well, thank you very, very much for taking your time with us today. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Jack Drescher about a series of articles he edited for Focused, Focused Psychiatry Online titled Psychotherapeutic Engagements with LGBTQ Plus Patients and Their Families. Um, Here at the New Books in Psychoanalysis uh, podcast channel of the New Books Network. Please contact me, Dr. Philip Lance at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. And thanks for listening.